there's another by Mark Twain that is something like the information which we do not currently possess would make a good sized volume. I think that's right. Um, and it's one of those sentences where there's so many knots and things <laughs> that you can easily set them all the way around. Um, but I think that speaks a lot to the fact that if we just think with what we know, we're not thinking with very much at all. So we need to find new inputs and stimuli to think differently so that we need to keep looking for them. And there's, there's always more that we don't know than we do know. And there's always more opportunity and ability to harness opportunity in the stuff that we don't know. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Great Business Minds podcast, the definitive show for the business of digital infrastructure. I'm your host, Jean-Marc Schlimmer, and I use my experience as a digital infrastructure journalist to dig deep into business issues, but also get to know those who build our digital world. Great Business Minds is brought to you by Portman Partners, the premier executive search firm for the digital infrastructure industry. With 50 plus years of experience, no other firm can match their knowledge, discretion and connections with the best top level talent in the sector. So are you seeking great business minds for your digital infrastructure business? Contact Portman Partners today. In this first episode of 2023, we are joined by a special guest who is an expert in design, especially corporate design. Mark Wilson is CEO of Future State Design, formerly known as Wilson Fletcher, a London-based business innovation consultancy which has over the last 20 years gained unique insights into challenges of driving transformative change in established organizations from their work with leading companies around the world. As a digital strategist with more than 30 years experience, Mark is also the author of Future State Design, How to Step Out of the Past to Create a Business Fit for the Future and the Regular Face on Business Changing Platforms. He has also founded Chronicle, a content intelligence platform and authored a master's degree in digital service design with the Brunel University in the United Kingdom. As if there wasn't enough, he is also an advisor to several startups, giving them guidance on branding, positive transformation and advice on market dynamics, always without forgetting the value of branding, consistency and visual language. We will be discussing not only his journey through the years, but also how design impacts a business and how digital infrastructure organizations can win better at the branding game, including quick actions that anyone can take today to up their branding resilience. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I mean, it's I think this is going to be a very interesting chat because it's completely different from what we usually do um, in our podcast. So welcome. Um, thank you. Before we jump, before we jump into design and building digital brands and how to how to create a conception and conceptualize um, a business in this day and age. Uh, talk us through your journey. Where where where'd you come from? What do you do? Um, where you are right now with everything in terms of business? Um, okay, I trained as an architect originally, bizarrely. So um, way back in the day, um, I yeah I went to architectural school, and um, it was really there that I got interested in the digital world. So we, uh, my architectural school is, is going to date me. Had one of the first Macs that came in the country in the UK, and um, I'd always hated computers. And the school secretary said to me, "Do you know what? I think you'll like this thing. Um, should I just learn it with an audio tape?" Um, and I just, yeah, I just fell in love. So it was for me. It was the first time I'd I'd got hold of a digital device like that that I thought I could really harness. And then um, finished my degree, worked in architecture for about a year. 
um, but continue doing some consulting around the edge with on um, on uh, early digital interactive work. This was hypercard back in those days for those that remember that um and did those interesting stuff in that year in architecture and then just realized that i didn't have the patience for the practice so um i love it i still love architecture but um i i found it more interesting as a design discipline than i did as something where i was gonna have to wait five or six or seven years for the thing that i designed to come out the end of the funnel um, so yeah, so I ended up focusing full time at that point on uh, uh, digital design and strategy. Uh, so it's been alarmingly about 32 years now that I've been exclusively in the in the digital design and strategy domain. That's very interesting. I'm, I'm seeing like a, a conductor line in terms of uh, my own past because I, I did apply I, I was going to go through architecture as well and then I kind of had the same thought of yours like I can't be dedicated to the same thing like this uh, for a long time even though I can with media but you know architecture is completely different you might be stuck with one project for a very long time until you make the name for yourself as well uh, it would take a very long time yeah um, but yeah. then actually all my friends they took their roots um, I think the longest one, she lasted about five, six years into the journey. And then she went into more or less what you're doing. So, but she went more towards the marketing side with a lot of design involved, of course. Um, so there seems I, to be. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's a design discipline. Certainly when I started, quite a few people moved from architecture into yeah. interactive design and, and um, you know, digital work in general. Cause I think it, the, the three dimensional nature of architecture is actually very similar to thinking about you know what was then the early stages of the web and um, you know CD-ROM and interactive kiosks and things, but mm -hmm. you needed to think spatially. So I think there were quite a lot of people who made that jump quite early yeah. and quite naturally. So I'm not surprised to hear that um, yeah. your friends bailed. <laughs> not just one, several. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but it's, I mean, but again, what you're doing is also there's a lot of transferable skills. So you can work with one industry, work with another industry, with digital infrastructure industry, for instance. Uh, but before we get into to work itself, and then, for example, how what how, what people in digital infrastructure can take away uh, from our chat as well. Let's get on to talking a little bit more about you and your journey. Uh, I mean, what motivates you, and who's your road model? Um, interesting. I'm, I'm, I think I'm very driven by my work, actually. Um, I enjoy solving problems, but I love working with smart people in our client companies who know all sorts of things that I don't know. And then when we work together, I get to make new connections using the expertise that I've got in, um, in, in uh, digital business and the expertise that they've got in their domains. And when you combine those things together, it's like cooking with new ingredients all the time. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm really motivated by that. And I, I, when I think about where those influences came from, I mean, there've been so many, but I, I, I tend to have been influenced by, by really single-minded people, people who are really driving to make significant change. So everybody from, you know, the Steve Jobs of the world who drove towards bringing out devices that, you know, millions of people could use and changed entire industries to architects like Norman Foster and Zaha Hadid who have, uh, have changed the 
you know the the nature of the world that we live in in lots of ways in cities and things but then even furniture designers like ray and charles eames who you know designed these amazing beautiful pieces of furniture so i think i i, I think it's always been that that drive to find the the next thing um you know we we you know we often describe our work as helping companies um design what they do next and I, that's what I think that's what gets me out of bed in the morning it's that constant um focus on bringing something new to the people that we work with and you know the the satisfaction that we get from inventing new things and um, coming up with new approaches for things it's it's yeah I mean it's great work but it's good yeah and also making those people happier because uh, a job well designed a job well delivered it transforms itself into happiness um, yeah, be it, it does. Through colors, through names, experiences, and ultimately, um, you know, we're a consulting business, so mm. it, it's never ours. Um, it's always theirs, and and actually seeing other people succeed because of the work that we do is actually for us, I think, far more satisfying than any success that we get from it. Um, yeah. You know, we've we God, we've generated enormous amounts of you know, billions and billions of new revenues for companies over the years and help them engage with millions and millions of new customers. Our, our business is quite small. So it's not like we ever get to realize those sorts of gains ourselves. But it's, it, you know, it's it's amazing when you see something really reach out into a large population and, and deliver real change. The hidden billion dollar maker. <laughs> I have, we should have been on commission right <laughs> somewhere in here there's a percentage that we didn't take yeah um, even just the one percent it'll make yeah. a huge difference i might uh, call, no, a, I might and, call a few people after this and say hmm i just had a thought <laughs> no and, and i love the the the, the architect choices well norman and um and zaz as well two massive uh names in the industry and uh, especially Zaz, she, she does a lot of different things um quite unique and futuristic designs always integrated within nature um but then yeah Mike. i i had a studio next to her once at yeah. one point oh, wow. when, yeah in, in an early life um, i'm not jealous a, at all <laughs> we had a studio in clarkenwell and we were in the um in the studio next door to zaha who did architects so yeah it's a bit of a history there yeah her, her building buildings are just amazing i mean the way the way they just flow and the way she can i don't know contort hard materials um and then it just looks like something just so smooth it just came out of the earth yeah. and yeah i like think her work there. her work was remarkable yeah. so yeah um then mark one question that i like to ask everyone with within what you do within like working for a business and everything what's something that's non-negotiable to you something that you do not open hand off um when you go to work i think um i think it's it's the the standard of the work that we do. Um, so I, I, one of the reasons that we started the company in the first place is so that we had control over how we worked and what we did. Um, mm -hmm. One of those is that we we won't compromise on the outcome of our work. So if we aren't happy that it's delivering what it should do, we'll we'll just keep work, keep at it and put more time and effort into it until we are happy. So, so the, the, the business gives us the flexibility to do that, right? And um, I think that's one of those non-negotiable things for me. We will not produce something that we aren't happy is doing what it needs to do. And I think that's, that's a real, 
it's an it's an, it's an ethics thing for us but i think it's a again it's a very motivating factor right we 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 love doing the kind of work that we do and it's really great to to produce something and see the clients being excited and you know briefing their teams and sometimes seeing thousands of people being briefed on a on a new strategy or revision for the future that um they're all going to be following and and seeing those people being excited about it too so yeah I, we won't we won't compromise on the work that's that's a that's an absolute red wine red line for us mm -hmm. which makes total sense uh, and that kind of segues me into now the questions around what people are doing uh, or maybe better off what they are not doing and what they are doing wrong so i mean from what you see in the industry i mean how bad is it around what people are doing in terms of their digital design in terms of building their brand um like how, what's your state of the market um overview i think i think the biggest mistake that people make when they when they talk about design is they think of it as an output um and you know design is a process so you don't you don't get delivered design um you you conduct design processes in order to get to something else right so you know i spend my days designing companies and services design isn't what comes out the end um it's a way to get us to that next step or that next big generational change everything should be designed um it's about it's, it's about putting things on a deliberate path to get them somewhere um fueled with ideas and new concepts and, and new ways of doing things so i think i i think the biggest mistake that i see persistently is people not thinking of design strategically enough um not being deliberate about designing everything that they do um and and thinking about um you know even even things as um i, I guess as kind of distant from the core of the business as, as the brand expression as being just an expression it's just it you know it's not thought of as being actually bound into the purpose of the business and its vision and all of those other things so yeah I, yeah i i think design is viewed too too non-strategically by most businesses and if they viewed it as something that could help them invent their future um in in the way that we use it on a on a daily basis i think you would see the view of design and, and the the role of design change in many more of those companies. What's like one example of something that you've seen that was so bad, you nearly felt so sorry and it was like, I'll just do it for you <laughs> for free because it's oh, so God, bad. There are so many. No need to mention names, but it's just <laughs> how bad was it? <laughs> um there are many. There are a lot in healthcare. Um so um we're actually looking at one at the moment without naming names um which is a, a service that's going out to millions of women and it's it's been designed so poorly that i suspect almost none of them are getting the benefits from it that they should be um and that's something where um we've been so kind of incensed at how poor it is that we've we've actually done a, a piece of work kind of pro bono to say look this is actually really important um this needs to be much better because the impact that it's going to have on 
um, on people is really important you know and and it's we've, we've got so many experiences in that area that we can throw into it that we're just saying look we'll, we'll just here's the first pass at making this much much better and thinking about it in a different way so yeah I think there are healthcare is one of those areas where um, the, the the factors are so critical and the the design um, the, the the strategic design that's gone into some of those areas has not been good enough historically mm. and continues not to be good enough and, and I guess it's also another very good point because um, a badly conceptualized design, it won't reach, it could, well, a good conceptualized design could reach maybe 10 times more people um, than what a lot of people have at, at the moment. So, and that can make the difference, can make the difference between saving lives, can make the difference between selling a business, can make the difference between just pushing services out. Um, and I guess simplicity is king here. Um, it is. It, it's crucial, but it's you know some things aren't innately simple right so there are there are processes and things that we have to do in life that sometimes take a bit of learning and sometimes are you know are quite complex in in their own right they that they are the ones in particular that needs to be thought about most carefully because some of those have a real impact on people so you know people managing healthcare plans um where they're managing a condition if they can't understand the support materials that have been delivered to them digitally in particular then their health is going to suffer now there are a million life-centric examples of those sorts of things mm. um but that i think in many cases it's because people think oh we need to do a website for that process or we need to have a thing for that so we need to go and get that designed and they're, they're almost immediately pushing it out to be a, a, a kind of a channel for the service and what they need to do is think about the service as a digital service design the whole thing with that end goal in mind and then um, think about what the best expression of it and also what that might mean for the core business behind it mm, absolutely um, and it's something that we we need to see a bit more, even in addition for sure space. Um, but uh, I mean, you mentioned healthcare as an example, but I already had um, the next question in my my questions card. Um, what has the impact of the pandemic been like um, around the digital businesses and designing these businesses, creating new businesses? Um, I mean, have people managed to get through it? I think it did a number of things actually to impact businesses. Um, I think a lot of it came down to how attitudes to work change but i think it also drove a kind of society-wide burnout in some ways i think people focus so hard on surviving that they emerged tired um, and haven't thought enough about what comes next i think i think we've got years of fluidity and behavior and attitudes ahead you know people learned to do things for the first time over the course of lockdown they started to appreciate different things. Um, you know, we've seen uh, the great resignation. We've seen loads and loads of people leave companies at the end of that, having made different lifestyle choices and so on. And some of those are regretting them. Some of those are flourishing. But what we do know is that there are more fluid kind of um, plastic attitudes in, in consumers and customers more generally than we've seen in generations and that that 
fluidity leads to opportunities because people are thinking differently about life and how they do business and all sorts of other things what work means to them and in there are a ton of opportunities for doing things differently launching new services growing customer bases that weren't there before um so i i, I think it's it's we, we've seen a lot of i think fatigue in the teams that kind of drove through lockdown to keep their businesses alive um there are lots of people who are only really starting to suffer now because of the the, the long-term effect of things that they didn't do or they couldn't do back in um, that kind of nearly two-year period of stasis so i think we're going to as i said i think we're going to see a, a, a number of years ahead where markets are going to be less predictable than they were customers are going to be less predictable than they were um, but they are equally going to be more receptive to new things than they would have been in the past so I think it's an opportunity rich period of time um, but I think it I, I don't know I, I I get the sense that it made a lot of people quite weary um, I mean even you know even doing video calls and all the sorts of things at the beginning um we with our team we started off when everybody flipped to work from home we had a lunchtime slot in 12 30 every day and everybody dialed in and had lunch together because we always had lunch together in the studio um it, about six weeks in none of us were doing it because we'd been on so many video calls um on a daily basis that actually what we all needed at lunchtime was to get out in the garden and go for a walk so I, I think even at that level um you know people have adapted to different things we, you know we've seen people do things that they've never done before I mean there, there were so many people in elderly generations for example who are now having video consults with doctors um you know talking about really intimate personal things that they would never have done if that had not been the only way that they could engage with some of those services mm -hmm. but now it's got them over a threshold and they now realize that actually that works really well um and means that they can get to see somebody more quickly and actually can have a really private conversation so they are now more receptive to doing those things across all all sorts of other areas of their lives and i think that's something that we are going to again see kind of ripple out across society for years to come it has really helped with digital literacy um in a way um, yeah, and it brought in a little bit more the digital inclusiveness of, of technology even though there's still a long uh, way to go uh but it, it's good you mentioned that because it was a, i think it was a mckenzie study that came out last year um and i keep going back to these kind of studies uh, because you referred that um we evolved in terms of digital adoption we evolved about seven to nine years in the space of one and a half um, so the, the the study came out in June last year, so around summertime last year, 2021. So it's it's a massive transition, which was already happening, but it was meant to take a decade at least, and <laughs> it took one and a half years. Um, but um, speaking of transitions and things transforming, um, you guys, so uh, Wilson uh, Fletcher, sorry, um, you're also reaching, going to reach a big milestone in a few months' time. Um, I mean, talk us through the business and who you are. Like, why did you start? How did you start it? Why did this? How? Who started it? And um, I mean, it's been good because it's been going for nearly twenty years now. So tell us what the journey has been like um, until your twentieth anniversary. 
Um, it, yeah, I mean, we're, as you said, we're 20 in January. And um, so Steph and I, my wife and I started the business um, just under two decades ago, which is terrifying thought. Um, and, <laughs> you know, like all businesses, you have all the ups and downs um, along the way. But we, as I said before, we started the business largely to enable us to work in the way that we wanted to work. Mm. Um, we had no great desire to run a business. Um, it was and remains a vehicle for us to work in a way um, that we want to. And, you know, we've we've always deliberately mm. not fitted in with the general trends and the kind of the, the 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 averages of the business of the of the industry right so we know that many of the methods in common use are leading to average to poor outcomes but they're easy to replicate and scale so lots of the big consultancies and people out there are using methods that aren't optimal but are easy to train people in how to do and therefore easy to get um, out into the market scale and we've never wanted to do that so you know we we've, we 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 built the business to enable us to do tailored programs of work every single time everything we do we do the first thing we do is design how we're going to tackle each program or each relationship or each engagement so it's about working without compromise basically and that's what we've always tried to do along the way um it's it has its upsides and it has its downsides. Um, there are lots of things that we can't do. You know, we're never going to be a thousand people. We don't want to be a thousand people. Um, and you know, we've been able to do things like the four day week, which we did three and a half years ago. Um, and you know, it, it that was a huge success for us. We you know we ran that all the way through lockdown. Um, and I mean, you know, the the I just don't get why everybody who certainly everybody in the service industry isn't doing it because the science is unequivocal. You get more peak thinking hours in a four day week than a five day week. So if how people think has an impact on what you do, then that's an investment that arguably you should be focusing on. Right. And yet people are still sticking with this. Oh no, it's, you know, less productive because there are fewer hours in the working week. It's just not true. Um, so I think it, it's enabled us to do things like that. We've been able to, you know, we've spent our startup, raised funding for that. We've done all sorts of things along the way um, that would have been quite hard to do in any other environment. Um, and yeah, you know, we're we're now in the process of kind of thinking through what the next generation of the business is like after after twenty years. I've got some really interesting ideas about what we want to leave behind and what we want to do next um and it, and you know running our own business gives us that freedom so mm. obviously you know ages us <laughs> on a <laughs> on a daily basis um i had hair when i started this process but um <laughs> yeah it, it's uh yeah, yeah i mean it, it you know on balance it gives you much more control over your agenda and the approach that you take and again it's that thing about work right we can we can decide to spend more of our money on getting something right um and in a in a traditional job uh, equivalent of what we do you you wouldn't get that option so yeah. yeah but but it's also quite admirable that one has gone on for 20 years so i mean especially crossing those first two three four or five years that's probably the hardest um and then secondly you've actually made the choice of not wanting to be a thousand people 
um, when clearly there, there is an opportunity to maybe be something like that, or even like 500 people. Uh, and that's quite admirable in itself as well, because you, you kept it small, which is more enjoyable um, somehow instead of becoming a large corporation. Um, and then I, th I think the four-day week thing was actually quite interesting, because I, I did pick up that on, the, on your website, because um, it's something I, I also don't understand why there's so much fight back um, on four-day weeks. And uh, we, we've had the proofs even before COVID that nations that work more hours on average a week, they actually have um, not as robust economies. Yeah, as the ones yeah. that will work slightly less hours, and uh, and I mean, I, I come from Portugal. We are the one of the countries that work the work most work the most hours in Europe, um, and unfortunately, we are not part of G7s and G10s and G20s. So <laughs> that kind of <laughs> also proves the point a little bit. And now you have so many demos uh, and trials going on, and um, I mean, I, I think it's more than proved, in my opinion. But um, it is. I, it's it's it's. I I think it's. I think it was proven long ago i think you know mm. as with most things scandinavia led the way with much of this thinking and with many of these work processes um and uh, again for me the the science when you actually read the science it is pretty unequivocal mm. these days and i remember when we introduced it to the team um we sat everybody down and told them what we were going to do i think most of them thought we were joking um and then the rest thought it was going to be a trial and we said no it's not a trial um mm. and we're not joking from next month this is the pattern that we're moving to um everybody's pay stays the same but you'll be working one day less and the the principle that we set for it was we called it four awesome days we said you can do anything you like with that extra day as long as it makes your four days of working better so if that's spending time with the kids if that's spending the day in bed that week awesome
Are you seeking great business minds for your digital infrastructure business? Portman Partners is a unique international executive search firm dedicated to finding the leaders for the digital infrastructure industry. Led by Portman founder and senior partner Peter Hannaford and chairman David Pye, Portman works with clients around the world in the internet and cloud infrastructure sector. Portman has a vast network of contacts around the globe and has placed senior leaders at many of the world's most prestigious organizations in the business. From investors to hyperscale operators, regional colors, designers, construction firms and plant and equipment manufacturers, Portman has the talents and experience required to fill a wide range of C-level and leadership positions. No other executive search firm specializing in the digital infrastructure sectors can match Portman's knowledge industry expertise, or the worldwide connections needed to conduct efficient and confidential searches that will result in successful placements. If you want to be at the top of your sector, get in touch with Portman, the best in theirs. To learn more and connect with Portman via their websites, visit www.portmanpartners.com. Welcome back to the second part of the Great Business Minds podcast episode with Mark Wilson. Uh, Mark, thank you so much again for, for being with us. Um, the first part was quite interesting to learn about your journey and uh, Wilson Fetch's as well journeys. Um, and then our last chat around uh, for the weeks and how things need to change a little bit more. But now let's talk about design and really building these, these businesses in this digital age. Uh, maybe the first thing I would like to start with is transformation fatigue um, and how can business understand uh, their staff is growing through it and all that. Uh, but let's talk about transformation fatigue. What is transformation fatigue in what you do and how do you overcome it? It's, it's a great question. It's something that we've um, come across more and more over the years. Um, I think what it comes down to is that humans just aren't great at thinking in long periods of time as a rule. Um, I said myself, right, going back to architecture, that thinking about the idea of seeing a project through for seven years and it being one thing was something that you know I struggled with. So I think people in a job typically thinking weeks and months, and even most leaders still thinking quarters, right? The quarterly reporting is is the scourge of good thinking. Um, so when you embark on a big business transformation program, people can become exhausted by the combination of two factors. The amount of change that's going on all the time, which is demanding and can be relentless, and the light at the end of the tunnel feeling like it's so far away that they can't imagine reaching it. So um they may not even feel that then they're, they're going to be in that job when that happens so it's very difficult for them to engage long term and as a result they just get fatigued and i think you can overcome it with um there's, there's a number of techniques that, that you can use but i think very simply you have to constantly re-engage with the vision you're building towards you we always talk about over communicating you have to really really double down on engaging and communicating with the team um, and crucially, you have to make sure that it's, it's actually in reach to start with. So one of the big principles of, of future state design, our methodology, is that we, we limit people to shorter horizons. So it's typically three years. And most people can get their head around three years um, and they can think about something of that kind of duration. It's also short enough that there's a decent chance that it'll happen like you set it out to be if you say we're going to set out a 10-year vision for something unless you're building roads or railways mm. so much is going to change in the meantime that that end goal is going to be fiction and people aren't stupid they know that so if you give them something that's too out of reach too far away 
and then you throw them into these enormously disruptive programs where they are being you know unsettled by the amount of change and some find it exciting and some find it really stressful then you end up with this fatigue building in in really large scale across teams actually and pace slows down and people get more risk adverse and they start thinking in more backward ways again um, and everything goes back to kind of how it was so it's a it's a really critical factor in um, in transformation and particularly businesses that are going through quite significant programs where they've they've not invested in the future much um historically they've hit a crunch point they've got a lot to change to get themselves in good shape and you know their teams have all been with them along that journey um transformation fatigue is something that you really really have to watch out for because it can it can disrupt all of the good stuff that you that you invest in to get yourself in a better position i i think it's a really good point and actually the three-year rule if we can call it a rule um it's quite a good metric um, I mean, as you were saying that, I always remember Asian companies uh, and even governments, but Asian companies, they are very good at managing the future into 10, 20, 30, 50 years ahead uh, and really getting their vision passed down to their teams. Um, and maybe in the Western world, we are very much focused, like you say, on quarterly reports um, and even maybe just 12 months. I think ultimately you, you, it's, it's about what components you're thinking with, right? So your purpose as an organization should be infinite. It shouldn't be something that you you don't you don't finish it. So that's something that goes over can span over decades. It could span over a century if you're that kind of company, right? But your vision should be something that's achievable. And you it, there's there's a great example in in something that Nike did years ago, and I often use it as an example for people. But they had this um, strategic initiative where they set out a vision. It was just called one fifty nine fifty nine, and it you know you ask people what they think it might mean and nobody can really get their head around it and it was all about getting a marathon runner to run a marathon in under two hours so it allowed them to focus all of their efforts on materials technology and training techniques and all sorts of things with a view to getting somebody to run under the two hour mark for a marathon and they didn't quite hit it um they've done it since but um it 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 gave everybody working in those domains within Nike, something very, very singular to focus on. And I think that's a goal that you can set and you can, you can set it by a time. You say by 2025, we will. Um, and those sorts of vision statements are really, really important for catalyzing teams and getting them to focus on the right thing. But that's completely different from your purpose as an organization, which really should be ideally infinite. I mean, ours is, you know, we're 20 years in, and our, our purpose is fundamentally unchanged from day one. It's all about helping businesses thrive in the digital economy. And we've tweaked the wording a couple of times over the years. But, but I, you know, as, a, as the reason we exist is the same. And that's true of most companies. You look at the Apples of the world and the Googles and then, you know, Nikes and the ones that have um, excelled over the years in their domain. And their, their purpose has remained unchanged. That's, so that's that thing about playing with the right ingredients in the right time. Your, your purpose stays the same. Your vision is set for a period of time. And then you use principles and values and things to drive your behavior to get there. Yeah, I, lo I love the one fifty nine fifty nine. I've never heard that before. And um, my head is already trying to imagine how can I tell us talent transport that into what I do. <laughs> we we use that technique. So um we it's something we've done for many many years but um we we call it kind of quantified vision mm. and um so we'll often get end up with clients who will have like 25 50 50 and it will be 
um, 25,000 customers um, using us 50% of the time with a 50% increase in revenue, say, if it, if it was a kind of a crude mm. business goal. Um, and the good thing about it is that you can always ask that question is, are, is the work we're doing now contributing to that goal? Yes or no. If it isn't, then, so if, you know, somebody in Nike was producing a really fluffy pair of shoes and that was going to increase drag, they might look great and they might potentially be really popular. But if it's not driving you towards that goal, that's not a sound investment to make. So I, I really like those quantified goals like that because I think they, they're really simple. Pretty much everybody can get hold of them and understand what they mean. And they can be really motivational. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Uh, and then, um, Mark, you, you've kind of touched on future states. Um, so I, I would like you to actually explain to our listeners what future state is, uh, what, what's the concepts, and then we can talk through the different parts of it. But what, what is the concept of future states? Um, future state design is a method that we've um, developed over many, many years. And I think it's been the anchor of our work for um, the, the whole time we've been in business. Um, fundamentally, most companies, when they think about what they should do next, or they think about how to develop their strategy, they use all the things they know now as the platform for doing that. So even in a really well-run company where they're talking to their customers regularly, um, they will get insights onto their current performance, their financials will tell them about the historic performance, um, you know, what's happened up until now. It can tell them about the, um, the operations in a particular marketplace up until now. What it can't tell them is what might replace what they're doing in a few years' time, what might happen instead, um, what could give them a real generational leap in performance. But equally, and as as we you know we touched on with that fluidity of behaviour in in consumers, it doesn't tell them, tell them. what the future customer might want, um, and partly that's down to them to define, right? So if you again, if you go back to things like Airbnb or Uber, if you'd ask people, you know, would you like to get in a stranger's car at the side of the road and go home late at night, they'd have said <laughs> you're crazy. If you said to them, would you like to pay to go stay in a random person's bedroom when you go to a distant country you've never been to they'd have all gone uh, no thanks but when you put really good quality versions of those concepts in front of people then they adopt them so that you you can drive new behaviors and really that's what future state design is all about it's about inventing the future version of your company or your services and often both so that you can look at what you do now with a very different lens and you can say, okay, what if we didn't do any of that? So if we, you know, instead of digitizing, which is the, you know, the, the arguably the biggest waste of money that companies ever do, um, they digitize their existing business. And this is one of the real flaws of um, what many digital transformation programs do. Um, mm. they, they, they instead need to invent the business they're going to become and that could be quite different in the way that it operates and, and the kind of customers that it serves and the one they've got today. And then they can figure out what the gap is and what things they need to do to get there. So often when we do these programs, there'll be companies who are investing in lots of initiatives um, that when they've built their vision of what the business is going to become, say, three years down the line, they'll immediately go and switch those initiatives off and stop that spend because those things aren't contributing to that vision of what they need to become next. And so it, it becomes very, very clear, very quickly that they're just burning money that 
they could actually be investing in a future focused initiative instead. So it, it's really, it's a technique for letting go of the past and thinking forward and building a vision um, of your, your, you know, your future self in business and service terms so that you can look back and say, right, now what do we need to do? What do we need to have done over the past three years to have got ourselves to this point? That's quite interesting because it's really about the return on continu continuity. Uh, but then what you say about spending money on digitalization, in the old days, there used to be the whole conversation was around we need to digitize, we need to digitize, we need to digitize. Uh, but then you very quickly start hearing about people complaining about budgets and not having money and cutting back. And I guess maybe what you just said is probably the root of the problem, where there's no return in the, the short view, the short term view that they've put in place for the business. Um, and they, they haven't really created that return on continuity for the longer term. I, um, I think the biggest mistake that companies make in general when they're, when they're, trying to adapt to the digital economy is digitization. So most digital transformation programs are actually just digitization programs. So they don't reinvent the business first. They digitize the business that they've got. Now, that, that, that is, that's 180 degrees away from uh, the approach that we believe in, because fundamentally you are digitizing the past and you'll spend a lot of time and money doing that. So let's say it takes you optimistically a year to digitize your current business operations. A year down the line, the world's moved on and you've digitized the business that is a year old. Now it's probably 10 years old, um, but you've, you've effectively, you've digitized the past. Now that cannot be a good investment. What you should be doing instead is inventing the future business, digitize that, and then progressively switch off or migrate from the the legacy business that you've been. And I I I think that that when you look at the, I think there was an estimate it was Gartner or IDC or one of the big research companies said that by next year or the year after, the global spend on digital transformation was going to be something like two point four trillion dollars. Mm -hmm. It's an yeah, astonishing amount of money. Um, I, I hate to think how much of that is going to be wasted spend on on just digitizing old stuff so bringing incremental gains and slight efficiency benefits when they could have used that money to really reinvent the way that they interact with their customers or give their customers something really genuinely new or enable their teams to work in more rewarding ways so i, I it, it's it's a mindset challenge fundamentally mm -hmm. you have to you have to have the confidence to to leave the past behind and that's really what future state design is all about in our work there's actually um so on, on the data center side for instance there's something that companies in this space have been trying to help companies with because the overspend on digital infrastructure the overspend on servers and everything it's just people buy more than what they need because they don't yep. understand the yep. quantity that they need because there's no planning for what they need in how long and how fast they will need it there's a lot of the, the, the word needing there but um so yeah so there's a lot of wasted money uh, wasted capital going into this transformation um, they're just not spending properly, and that could then be used for so many other use cases. I'll give you um, a great example. In, in the, the, the kind of infrastructure and data storage space, can you imagine how much data is being collected at the moment that companies have no plan for or no idea? Of, right? So I've, I've been in many a boardroom where 
um, somebody will say, oh, you know, we've, we've just set aside $20 million for our data strategy over the next couple of years. <laughs> and then when you, when you dig into it and you ask them what their data strategy is, it tends to be collecting data about everything. Now, what they should do first is decide what data and insights could materially impact the success of their organization and then focus on collecting the data that can contribute to knowing that. That's probably a fraction of what that huge corpus of data would otherwise be. So I think for infrastructure and you know data centers and people hosting you know data lakes and things, um, you know advising companies to to think about purpose of data first, it, you know it would would enable them to offer a much more efficient and effective service where where end clients will actually end up getting a lot more out of it than they will if they're just collecting and paying for the storage of this well ocean um, of data that they just can't realize any value from yeah uh, it, it, it indeed is an ocean because um, every two years i mean we are pacing more slow by miles yeah. Um, yeah. but um, i mean every two years data multiplies and we are only using about two percent of the world's data right now and that's going to come down to about one percent um, if things don't change so you can imagine that everything that humanity has achieved with two percent of the data that we have um if only even we just use 20 30 percent of that data will be 20 30 times more than what we are now so that, that could be quite interesting but uh, uh mark so bring now a little bit bring it closer to to home to the digital data center home um, I don't know if you had a chance to have a look around some different data center businesses websites and all that uh, I mean one what's your what's your doctor's view of what you've seen there what's the temperature like um, and then what advice have you got for these businesses especially around future state because you've got about seven pillars they're going to future states um I I mean I think you know generally the the I suppose the the, the digital standards across the industry are I think it's safe to say they're lower than I would had expected them to be. Um, I I think it feels to me like there's a lot of um, a lot of kind of fulfillment services in the marketplace. We're we're reactive to what you need, um, whereas I think there's an opportunity for those services to become much more proactive and the positioning to become more proactive. I don't think there's anything wrong with having a quiet brand in that space. So, you know, not all brands have to be shouty. They don't all have to be, you know, in your face all the time. I think some of some of the, the brands that are out in that market right now could make themselves feel much more deliberately like they're a behind the scenes company. And that could give them a real credibility and an, and an uplift in their positioning that they perhaps don't have at the moment. But I think a lot of it comes down to proposition and positioning. Um, there's just so much overlap we we've got this thing about you know when you you think about um positioning you you know and I, it kind of loops back to probably the, the 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 worst piece of advice i was ever given was keep a really close eye on your competitors and that was many 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 years ago you sadly um, yourself if you do yeah and fundamentally the best piece of advice i was ever given was to stop doing the first one because um, all you do if you if you're spending all your time looking left and right is you just become more and more alike, and you see this in mature industries. And and I think the the world that you're in is one of those industries where there's an enormous amount of likeness across the the marketplace. So how do you know who to choose for what, 
and how does each of those companies this describe their distinctive positioning um so i think yeah across the piece there there are there are probably lots of areas where many companies could get right back to basics really dig back into their purpose of why they exist and it's not to run reliable data centers um it's to help the people that are using those data centers get outcomes for for their businesses so i think it's you get back to some of those real core principles of business and, and then basically cascade everything from there so that they end up with a, a digital expression of what they do and who they are that is distinctive and focuses on where they're strong and doesn't try to pretend to be like one of their peers who just happen to be doing or appearing to do really well at the moment that's quite interesting there's reminding me of um you, you probably weren't aware uh, back in 2007 uh, 17 18 uh, when the the notion of edge computing came around um, and a lot of these businesses no one was an edge business and everyone was like well this is not this is not what we're looking at this is not what we're going to do uh, i mean that kind of narrative lasted for about six to eight months because i remember by about spring 2019 everyone was an edge company every every tagline everything changed <laughs> to an edge company um, even though a lot of them they don't they are not what an edge company um or at least the notion of edge um that, that we have widely defined uh, it's not even fully defined uh, it's not that and now we're seeing the same shift towards the world of digital infrastructure so now every company is becoming a digital infrastructure company um so you went from data center to edge to digital infrastructure and everyone's kind of just copying and pasting <laughs> the terms um into themselves so that, that's quite interesting that you, that you said that um looking from the outside in any sector i mean you know in our sector right some of the things that we do day to day so the utility work if you like that's part of of what we do there are thousands of companies that do the same thing it's it's just a task it's a bit like accounting right we all have to do accounting mm. so we, we wouldn't play on that as being a distinctive factor and i think what companies do is they go far too down their stack of services when only a very tiny percentage of them make them distinctive and different from their peer group there's nothing wrong with operationally being really similar to other people so i think mobile phone companies they all connect to masks they all do the same thing they let you make phone calls they let you send emails and texts and all that kind of stuff right there's nothing wrong with them all being functionally similar trains buses there are loads of services out there where the, the underlying functionality it's actually very good this commonality across the industry but what they all focus on then the good ones is the bit that they do that's different and I think looking across this industry, there's less of that. There's there's less of the sophisticated maturity in some of those positionings and um, uh, and the, the the way that companies are telling their story um, and deciding who they want to bring in and attract as their customers than there are in other sectors. And I think that's just because it's been, you know, a a, a blossoming space for a very long time. Um, you know, everybody's buying more of it. So there's, there's, you know, it's, it's been a, a, a growth sector for a very long time. And I think people are, have probably have just been content to ride that wave of growth and not perhaps carve out an even bigger piece of it that, you know, as they could do by being a more distinctive and differentiated player in that space. I think to be honest with you, I think that's a very good observation and I totally agree. Um, I think sometimes just going a little bit outside of the box and looking beyond what's right in front of you, um, you would take this to an even bigger 
uh, an even higher level. Um, and but I think you're right. It's the, the the amount of capital coming in can easily blindside a lot of people and a lot of businesses um, because because <laughs> let's leave it like like that. Yeah. Um, but then, Mark, you kind of answered. So the last two questions I like to ask everyone is around advice and uh, quotes and all that. But I think you've kind of answered um, the, the one I was going I was going to ask about around your favorite quote, uh, your best and worst advice. Uh, unless you have a different one, uh, if you do, please do say. Um, if not, I always like to close with uh, what's your favorite quote by who and why. Um, I think the, the the advice one. I mean, there's probably a whole load actually, but that's the one that always <laughs> sticks in my head because I think it's yeah. something that I see people doing um, just so often. I think if you're always looking sideways, you you will ultimately eventually just become the next Kodak, right? You'll be, you'll be measuring yourself against what those close to you are doing, and you won't look at what you could be doing instead. So I, you know, for me, that's still something that I know, you know, affected our business um, a long time ago. Whenever we tried to um, think about what how we should fit into the marketplace whenever we we even got tempted that way um it had a negative impact on us so it's it's you know it's something that's kind of wired into my brain these days mm. quote wise um there are lots there's there's a and i'll never remember the exact wording but there's a there's a, a jeff bezos quote that again really aligns with our our way of thinking which is that you know our job is to invent on behalf of our customers and I think that's something that we feel really strongly about because we don't believe in traditional customer-led design. It's great for iterative improvements. It never gets you big leaps in, um, in you know, the kind of changing the game leaps. And and there's another by Mark Twain that is something like the information which we do not currently possess would make a good-sized volume. I think that's right. Um and it's one of those sentences where there's so many knots and things <laughs> you can easily set the wrong way around. Um, but I think that speaks a lot to the fact that if we just think with what we know, we're not thinking with very much at all. So we need to find new inputs and stimuli to think differently so that we need to keep looking for them. And there's, there's always more that we don't know than we do know. And there's always more opportunity and ability to harness opportunity in the stuff that we don't know. And that, that, again, is really what future state design is all about for us. It's tap into the stuff that isn't obvious, that you can't see right now, that you can't just look at in your analytics report and think about the things that you don't know or that might happen so that you can harness opportunity in, in new ways. So who knew that Mark Twain was going to end up being a kind of innovation thinker uh, of old <laughs> a role model <laughs> exactly no it's and and i guess it also circles back again to that notion of just being open um look at new things be open look outside the box don't just be siloed by competitors uh looking to other marketplaces for for inspiration and for innovation yeah um, because otherwise you're going to be in the loop it's going to be the same loop um and it's something that we see quite often um not just in this sector we see it in every other sector as well um, but that, that's very important. Uh, but yeah, there's well, a thing that we, we call aggregate expectations, right? So yeah. the world changed when pretty much when the iPhone launched. Um, but we, we we all now tend to view all the services in the world through a small screen. Um, so our expectation of one is now set by the best of all of them. So we don't look at, oh, I see, I'm going through this insurance quotation process. How does this compare to other insurance quotation processes? our benchmark standard is set by the best process that we went through ever. 
So if your hairdresser happens to have an amazing booking system, then you will compare your um, insurance company's system against that. And, and that applies in all sorts of different levels now in, in society. So it, it's really, really important to look at where the influences on the people you serve are coming from and where they are taking them so that you can infer where you need to end up in the future based on all of those other things that are driving them down those kind of you know behavioral roads no no absolutely and again very good point well made uh but mark wilson it's been a pleasure it's been a refreshing conversation to be honest um to, to step out of outside of the box even us to step outside of the box and go and explore a different uh, different vertical and different ideas uh, so i really really enjoyed it. thank you so much been a pleasure thank you for inviting me and to our listeners thank you for tuning in and don't forget to review and share this episode and follow the great business minds podcast on all your favorite streaming and social media platforms you can find the links in the podcast description thank you again to our sponsor portman partners the leading executive search firm for the digital infrastructure sector portman finds the talent you need to protect and enrich your assets they get it right the first time every time do subscribe to the podcast and we invite you back again for the next episode of the definitive show for the business of digital infrastructure, the Great Business Minds podcast. See you then.